it was just unfortunate for Tom that he wasn't there when it happened. No one really knows why he wasn't there and what he was doing. Maybe he was the one who had been volunteered to go out and get some supplies after the Saturday when all the shops were shut. Or perhaps he needed to let his family know that he was still safe and well after the dreadful events of the weekend. Or maybe he just had to get out and get some fresh air after being cooped up behind locked doors for over 48 hours with his ten fearful friends, ten other depressed disciples. Whatever the case, he wasn't there. The only one who wasn't there when it happened. The other ten, Pete, Andy, both Jims, John, Phil, Bart, Matt, Simon, Jude, were all present when it happened. Uh, This is how John, one of those who was there, wrote down the story later. He said, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now imagine for a moment you are Tom. And you return back after wherever you've been. I bet they had some sort of special knock to let people know it was a friend and not a squadron of Roman soldiers come to arrest them. So Tom knocks on the door. And the door is open, flung open, and all of his friends, like one of those surprise birthday parties, jump up and shout the news all at the same time. We have seen the Lord. Jesus is alive. We saw his hands on his side. It's him. It's him. He's alive. He's alive. And they're just so excited and deliriously happy. Now, if you'd been Tom, what do you think your reaction would have been? Do you think you would have jumped for joy? Become a believer? Closer to home. Maybe you know someone. Maybe a close friend. Or a family member who has become a Christian. And they actually believe that Jesus Christ is alive, risen from the dead, and that they now have a personal relationship with him. And they're just so full of it and the joy and change it's brought about in their lives. And maybe, like you, they didn't believe in any of that stuff before, but now, much to their amazement and to yours, they do. Now, what's your reaction? How do you respond to someone like that, to that kind of claim? Do you believe it or not? Let me read the account of how Tom, better known as Thomas, responded. You'll find it in the Bible. If you want to look it up, you can do. Otherwise, I'll read it for you. And we're going to read John's Gospel. That's the fourth of the stories that were told about Jesus, the Gospel accounts in the New Testament of the Bible. And it's John chapter 20. We're just going to read verses 24 to 31. Then I'm going to comment briefly on them. If you need a Bible, there are some in the pews. And it's page 1089. It's a big book of the Bible, so you keep going to near the end, 1089. John chapter 20 and verse 24. And it's all about Thomas called Didymus. 
actually, we don't even know if his name was Thomas, because Thomas means twin, and he was one of a twin, and his nickname was twin, so that might not have actually been his name, but anyway, we'll call him Thomas or Tom for that. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Through, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the Gospel account, God's Word. And let me simply say something about Thomas and what I would call his journey, a journey from doubt to faith. Now, notice the immediate response of Thomas when he gets the news from his friends that Jesus is alive. You could summarize it in the, na- in the words of a well-known television character, and it's not original to him, therefore. I don't believe it. The only thing most people know about poor old Thomas is from this story, that he was the one disciple who didn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and therefore he got this nickname, Doubting Thomas. And anybody who doesn't believe anything, we say, oh, you're a doubting Thomas. Poor old Thomas. It's a bit unfair. Yeah, he was the only one who doubted, but he was the only one who wasn't there when it happened. And I suspect in his shoes, we'd probably have felt pretty much the same. Some of us would have done that, because in such circumstances, is it not true that when someone shares good news that you've missed out on, there's a kind of an aggrieved response that you actually weren't there? You know, the person you say... Do you really believe that that guy who called while I've just been out was giving away free Caribbean holidays? There's no such thing as a free lunch or a free holiday. But the response of Thomas is based on something far more fundamental than personal peak. Thomas is one of these people, he's a realist, practical, down to earth. What you see is what you get. The kind of person who's not taken in by wild claims or or befuddled by obscure language. In actual fact, in this Gospel of John, John records two other occasions when Thomas features. Most people don't know about these unless you've actually read the story quite closely. On one occasion, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go to Jerusalem. And they all say, no, no, Jerusalem is where everybody's apt to get you and they'll kill you. And Thomas turns to the rest and he says, look, Let's go to Jerusalem so that we may die with him. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a loyal, dogged sort of fellow. On another occasion, Jesus begins to teach them about the fact that he's going away from them. And he says, you know where I'm going and the way. And Thomas says, Lord, Lord we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, in actual fact, 
people, none of the disciples knew what Jesus was talking about. But Thomas was the guy who came out and said what everybody else was thinking. He's the sort of person who needs plain answers. He's a realist. And so, when his friends tell, tell, tell Thomas that Jesus is alive, there is one real reason for Thomas's scepticism. There may well be other reasons. He may, he may well have asked, look, okay, you say the doors were locked and suddenly appeared. How did he get through locked doors and solid walls? But that wasn't his real fundamental objection. The biggest problem that Thomas had was that Jesus had died. He hadn't just passed out in his sleep. He hadn't just expired gracefully. He had died a most horrific death by crucifixion. And Thomas had been there and he knew it. Now, whatever you think about Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, one thing it accurately portrays in the most brutal way is the fact that Jesus did die a gruesome and painful death, finalized, confirmed by a soldier's spear as it was thrust in his side and blood and water poured out. As we thought this morning, if we were here, Roman centurions didn't make those kind of mistakes by taking someone like that down from a cross who was still alive. How ridiculous. Somebody showed me a website this week. People are still propagating this idea that Jesus revived in the cool of a tomb and then went on holiday somewhere to Kashmir and grew up and lived to be 120 and raised a family. Listen. It's perfectly true. There's a particular Muslim group that believes that. That's where it originates. Listen, people who are crucified like that, they don't come to life again. Now, Thomas knows that. And yet, his fellow disciples are saying, we've seen him alive, bodily. We saw the place in his side where the Spirit entered. His hands and feet had got nail marks in them. And Thomas says, dead men don't talk, and crucified men don't walk, ever. And that's why Thomas doesn't believe. I, I don't believe it. And so he says the second thing, quite clearly. He says, I won't believe it, unless... There is no way Thomas will ever be convinced that Jesus is alive unless he has clear and unmistakable evidence. Look what he says in verse 25. Okay, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. The the original language is even more emphatic. I will definitely not believe it. Notice that Thomas wants real evidence from two of his senses. From sight... He wants to see Jesus, but he also wants to touch him. He wants proof that the person who his friends saw really is Jesus, the same Jesus who was crucified, and so he wants to see, he says, the nail marks in his hands. And even if it is what appears to be Jesus who was crucified, he wants evidence that this is not some kind of ghostly apparition. He wants to touch his body. Not just seeing the nail marks, but putting his finger in them and his hands in the side of Jesus. Then, and only then, when he, will he believe when he has proof that it really is Jesus. And without this proof, he says, I will definitely not believe it. You could summarize this position as being, seeing is believing. Even more, seeing and touching is believing. Now, it's quite significant that the writers of these gospel accounts of the life of Jesus include stories like this and people like this. There's no spin doctrine here covering over everything and it's all in kind of glossy terms. 
if you've never read the Bible, you'll discover it's a book with warts and all. It tells the truth about people and their real reactions. That's one of the reasons that gives it a ring of truth. And, and I'm also encouraged that it includes people like Thomas because, let's face it, someone like Thomas rings true with our own experience, doesn't it? You know, we all know people who seem to live on a super spiritual term and, and speak in esoteric language and you wonder what they're talking about. But we feel a closer affinity with the Thomases of the world who want more tangible personal evidence before they're convinced. And like Thomas, our instinctive response to this kind of thing is, I don't believe it, and I won't believe it, unless I have compelling evidence which will cause me to change my mind. Thankfully, such requests, even demands, do not go unheard. A week goes by. I imagine it was a very long week. With ten excited disciples with big grins on their faces, and poor old Thomas, still down in the mouth, and every day that went by, I bet he said, I told you so. You imagined it. It's not really true. But one week later, on the same day, on Sunday, the disciples are in the same room, and Jesus again suddenly appears to them. But this time, Thomas is present with the rest. There is a general greeting from Jesus, Peace be with you, and then a special word for Thomas alone. Then Jesus said to Thomas, verse 27, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. And now we see the final stage in the journey. I don't believe it. I won't believe it. Thirdly, I do believe it. Very kind of Jesus to acquiesce to the request of Thomas. There's no actual evidence that Thomas actually did what he wanted to do. Just the sight of Jesus and the word of Jesus was enough to convince him one for all. We have no evidence that he, he went over and put his hand in the side of Jesus or put his finger in the nail marks. He knew it was Jesus. And he simply confesses his personal faith. It's a great confession. He says, my Lord and my God. Because he realises if he'd ever had any doubts before that this man Jesus is more than a man, he is Lord and he is God. Before he was the dead master of Thomas. Now he's the risen Lord. Faith has been replaced by sight. He has seen and now he believes. His doubt is banished forever. For Thomas, seeing is believing. As Jesus reminds him, look what he says. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Now notice something in conclusion. It's very important to stay with this story. Jesus goes on to say to Thomas and to us, he says God's blessing, that is God's approval and favour, rests not on those who believe because they have seen, but on those who believe despite the fact that they have not seen. Look at the words of Jesus. Not seeing, yet believing. Because you have seen me, Thomas, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that applies to all of us. For the only possible basis on which to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead and is now Saviour and Lord is not seeing the risen Jesus no longer appears on demand to people like he did to Thomas. So, you need to ask yourself, do we have lesser evidence on which to base our faith? Surely, you say, if we lived in those days 2,000 years ago, we could have appealed for the same thing to happen to us and then we would have believed. Jesus says no. He says you can believe without seeing. 
We have all the evidence we need which leads us to faith in the risen Christ. Where is that evidence, you may ask? Well, notice how John, he probably ends his gospel here in chapter 21 to kind of postscript that comes later. There is evidence for believing. This is the end of this gospel of John. It relates various signs and miracles that Jesus did, seven actually, and one additional one. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We have written evidence of eyewitnesses. That is why John has taken the trouble to write this gospel. He said these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. You have written evidence. That's why this book is the most attacked book in the world, why the critics have had a field day on this book as on no other book in human history, and why it has still stood the test of time by those who have tried to demolish it. It stands true as a remarkable book. More than that, it is the Word of God written by human authors under the guidance of the Holy Spirit with accurate eyewitness records of people like Thomas who didn't believe and yet came to a living faith in Christ. If you can destroy the credibility of this book, you destroy the credibility of the Christian faith. That's why it still stands. These things are written. If we do not have a scripture that is reliable, then our faith is in vain. And if we do not have a risen Lord who rose from the grave, grave bodily, our faith is based on sand not on rock. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, writing just some 20 years or so, answering this after the resurrection of Christ, answering the same criticisms, and nothing new, he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, so is our faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Jesus from the dead. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. But notice that the evidence of eyewitnesses, important though they are, is not the only ground for believing that Jesus has been raised from the dead. You see, you may, you may understand all this. You may say, well, something strange and remarkable happened. Maybe, maybe that really did happen. But I want to ask you, has that had any personal implication in your life? Look again at what John writes. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believing is not just a mental assent to certain facts or propositions. The evidence for believing is based on reliable records about the claims of Jesus, which are then proved by personal experience as you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you trust him and say, I believe that what this book says about you is true. I am prepared to commit my life to that. And as you turn from your old way of life and put your faith in Christ, the Bible says you receive a new life. You receive life in his name. The name of Jesus represents his character, all that he offers. You prove that Jesus Christ is the one who can bring you into a relationship with God. You prove that he is... Um, is, is this is very hard to explain if you've not experienced it. Where I come from in the Midlands of England, we say it's better felt than telt. It's hard to explain. But when you put your faith in Jesus, like those who have been baptised have tried to explain to us this evening, then something happens. You receive a new relationship with God. 
a new joy of sins forgiven, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I want to challenge you by saying, we have all the evidence that we need. The evidence in the Word of God that is written by eyewitnesses, and when you hear what it claims, then you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You simply turn from your sin, and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you and rose again from the grave. And when you do, you receive life in His name. A new life which begins now and which continues forever through eternity. That even death cannot break it. And the offer of this life is available to all who will take it based on evidence that demands a verdict. And so my final question to you is, we've looked at some of this, do you believe? Or have you chosen to ignore the evidence? To persist in your unbelief, I've made up my mind, don't confuse me with the facts. To do so would be a tragic mistake. I finish with the best known verse in the Bible, John, again John's Gospel, John 3.16, words spoken by Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I trust that's your experience and that you've proved for yourself that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive and that you've received that new life in his name. And if not, maybe this evening is the occasion for you to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing would be more wonderful on an occasion like this. Jesus said there is rejoicing before the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents, puts their trust in Christ. We're going to sing about that personal faith and then the baptisms will follow.